the mountain lends itself to like gnarly, gnarly World Cup style downhill tracks. Welcome to Trail Effect. I'm your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you'll hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 43, we bring you part two of the Knoxville series. Sean Leader of the Windrock Bike Park is our guest for this episode. Sean is one of the original creators of the Windrock Bike Park. Located about 30 minutes northwest of Knoxville, the Windrock Bike Park offers a true downhill and gravity-based mountain biking experience. Listen and learn more about Sean himself and why Windrock Bike Park was created. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Celsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Here we are today at Trail Effect. Perfect chance to. In the background, you hear Sean Leader. Yeah. (laughs) Sean Leader is the owner proprietor of Windrock Bike Park up here in just north of Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. We're just outside of Knoxville, like 40 minutes from uh, downtown Knoxville, but kind of in the backyard for a lot of people. We're, um, there's a lot of urban sprawl in Knoxville. So we're kind of in the backyard of anybody who lives in like West Knoxville. You're, you're, you know, 10, 15 minutes from our parking lot. Yeah. You were just talking before we hit record. Yeah. About how you, how you've watched Knoxville grow. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. I, I grew up here. I was born here. Um, I was born here and, uh, my parents were living like kind of West of Knoxville. So over the years, I mean, just like watched, watched this town grow so much. And, um, I know like when I was a kid, it was like, there was every, every like neighborhood that you'd go to, there was undeveloped land around their neighborhood. It's like, there was always a really good spot of woods, like at all your friends' houses. And then the, the property is really spread out here too. So like a lot of your friends growing up had big tracts of land here. Like things are spread out. Like it's pretty rural, like quick outside of Knoxville. Like as soon as you're, as soon as you're outside the main metropolitan area, it's, it gets rural fast. Yeah. And, and still within city limits even. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, South Knoxville is a great testament to that where it's a, um, it's, you know, there's tons of 40, 50 acre tracks down there that people have little micro farms on and they're homesteading and right in South Knoxville, you got people homesteading and they're riding their bikes into the city. You know, it's like pretty unique place, honestly. I mean, yeah. From what I've seen, I think it's, it's pretty out there, honestly. Well, let's dig into your backstory and how you, how you found mountain biking. Yeah. I think, um, I think my story is starting to seem a lot more common. Like 
there's a whole generation that kind of has similar trajectory, I guess, as us. And I feel like we were like the first set of Groms, like kids my age were kind of like round one of Groms, you know, where mountain biking was really kicking off with a group that was older than us, obviously. And we, we were either their kids or like just the random kid from the neighborhood who noticed like people on these sick mountain bikes. So I feel like I'm starting to hear more and more of people who have a pretty similar story to me where it's like, we were round one Groms, like at the local trails, you know, the like 10 year old kid who could tread out there. And, and so we had like a really cool XC spot, uh, just maybe eight or nine minutes from my parents' house called Haw Ridge. And it's still there. It's an awesome spot. And it was kind of like your nest of like 15 acres of, or 15 miles of like XC trails all like packed together in like a honeycomb shape. And that was daycare for me for sure. Like my mom would drop us off there and come back and pick us up in three hours and we would just like go out and ride. So yeah, I think that that really was the start of things. And then me and my brother got really into all like outdoor sports. Like this area is a haven for so much more than mountain biking. And I think, you know, obviously a lot of mountain towns are going to have that, but here like rock climbing is really big. Whitewater kayaking is really big. Backpacking is huge. Like in high school, we spent so many weekends going backpacking because the Great Smoky Mountains Park is just like this unbelievable spot to go backpacking. Like if you want to, if you want to put a backpack on and go walk in a forest, there's not really much better of a spot than Smoky Mountains. So I spent a lot of time doing that in high school. Um, and then uh, my brother, he was two years older than me and he and I were like real tight all through our childhood. So when he went to college, he got really into rock climbing his first year in college. And, and then I started climbing cause of him and got really into climbing and then, uh, started getting into kayaking some. And then I kind of found like downhill skiing pretty early. Like when I was, when I was like younger, downhill skiing was like really interesting to me, I guess. Cause it was like something that was so foreign to Tennessee. Oh yeah. And I think it was like a product of, uh, product of the young internet and i think that obviously like kids my or guys my age like we were a product of like the first round of internet too and uh like i remember kind of after napster you had limewire like napster was all music right and then but limewire was when people started like torrenting movies and uh, software and things like that so limewire was like a cool escape as a kid like I started downloading these Warren Miller ski films and like they were all over LimeWire you could get seasons and seasons of Warren Miller films and so I kind of like had this obsession with Warren Miller films when I was like just starting high school so I was riding a lot of mountain bikes at the time but I can't I got like really obsessed with skiing I was like I gotta do this so I went a couple times in North Carolina wasn't really like a Warren Miller film. <laughs> like it, it was like, no, this isn't right. This isn't Warren Miller. Um, so then uh, I got my, we went to Colorado a couple times for like spring break. And I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. Like I get it. And then I had this awesome opportunity when I was like a senior in high school that was just absolutely life-changing. Like me and high school were not getting along. I was like not cut out for school. It wasn't going to happen. I was a loose unit. 
So I got to, I got to take a, the first semester off and I went to Australia for three months or four months. And that, that was a real life changer for me. Like I got to travel around with my brother. We rock climbed all over the East coast of Australia and we're just living out of a Subaru. I was 17. My brother was 19, 20 maybe. And he was going to college there. And we bought this Subaru Forester. My mom came over with us, helped arrange buy the car and hung out for like two weeks. And then she's like, all right, don't do anything fucking stupid. Like have fun, go after it. And my brother got his summer break and we just road tripped. We got in that Subaru and, and just worked our way down the East coast of Australia. And we rock climbed at every spot we could. We went backpacking in Tasmania, like these wild locations. Like, and, uh, after that I was hooked. I mean, like leaving high school, I was like, well, I'm not doing anything other than being outside. And, uh, right after high school, I remember I had to take like the ACT or SAT or some, some one of those things. And like my parents were wanting me to do it. I didn't want to do it because I had a, I had booked a flight to New Zealand like the day after it. So I went in there and like took half the test and I was just like so stoked to go to New Zealand and uh, wasn't interested. I was like done, done with school and went to New Zealand and stayed in New Zealand for three months. We rented like a, you used to be able to rent these like wicked vans. They might still have them there, but they would like, they were like van rentals that had all the camp gear in them, but they were painted with like crazy stuff on them. You know, like I think our van had uh, a mural of the Rolling Stones on it. And on the back, it said like Rolling Stoned was the name of the van. And it said like, I say no to drugs, but they don't listen or something. So it was, it was awesome. Like 19 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Rented it like that. It was, it was great. And we had that thing for like two months or three months. We were living out of that thing and hitting all the ski mountains there. The ski culture there is pretty cool. Like short mountains, but like all like high alpine. And it was a lot of like hiking out to terrain. So I was like getting closer to feeling like I was in Warren Miller. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was right after high school. I did that. And then, uh, from there I went to Colorado and was skiing in Colorado and stayed in Colorado for like a year skiing there. And I was like fully into skiing, came back to Tennessee for, a for, um, a couple weeks and had applied to a couple colleges. I guess in Colorado, I started taking some classes like photography classes. So I was starting to get interested in in like shooting videos and, and mostly photography stuff. Like I took some, I took some like, um, photography classes in Colorado where I got to use like dark room. And that was, a that was like a cool experience where it was like the first time I was like, Oh, I, I actually could see going back to college. So I came back to Knoxville. I had applied to a couple colleges. I applied to go in Denver and I applied to go to UT in Knoxville. And, uh, it wasn't really realistic financially to go anywhere but UT. So I, I decided to come here and study, uh, study graphic design and really heavy focus on photography. Um, but it just wasn't realistic to, it wasn't realistic to go out of state. Like I wasn't going to pay for that. I already was like hesitant to go to college and the idea of like being in debt was crazy. 
because here in Tennessee, you can go even as dumb as I was, like I barely passed this test, the ACT or ST, where I get horrible score on it, got through high school hardly, like not exactly a stellar student. So my choices were a little limited, but I wanted to study art. So it's like, I mean, how smart do I really need to be to study art? Come on. So I, uh, I ended up going to UT. Um, it was an awesome experience. But being back in Tennessee and away from the ski culture, I started picking up more climbing again. I was really back, back into climbing a lot. And I was working in a climbing gym. I was working in a climbing gym and seeing a, they had like a hardtail Gary Fisher single speed in there. Oh, the rig. Yeah, the rig. And I could get employee pricing on it. So it was like 450 bucks or something. It was so cheap. And I was like, I should just buy one of these things. My last bike I had bought was in high school. Like me and my brother both bought giant NRS. We had like the giant NRS and that's what we rode like all when we were kids, like in middle school and high school. And then, uh, yeah, when I was working in that climbing gym, I, I picked up the rig and, uh, went to a couple like races with some guys I had met locally and, uh, just seemed practical. Like all the other outdoor sports, as much as I love them, like I think rock climbing is way sicker. I think kayaking is way sicker. Like there's, there's so many outdoor action sports that are like really, really cool. But mountain biking was like the most realistic to do between classes, between work. You could, you could do it anywhere. You could get it in really quick where all the other sports were logistically kind of a cluster, you know, like you got to organize a belay partner. You're trying to set up a shuttle to go kayaking, like the logistics of it were a barrier, right? So mountain biking was kind of this like quick escape where I could go on rides every day and still feel like I was kind of like getting outside. And then I got into like the endurance racing scene. And, um, that was really big here. Like everybody who was riding in this area at that time was really into ultra endurance racing. So as far as I knew, like when I got back into mountain biking, I was like a, I guess second year of college and uh, everybody that I was running into was racing ultra endurance. So I went to it. I went to all these like six hour, 12 hour. We had some eight hours locally. And then I would do the NUE hundred mile series, which you can probably relate to. Well, um, I can. Yeah. That's uh, I know that stuff. Yeah. It hurts. It does. I can't believe I did it. I was like 20 when I was the best at it. I was probably like 22 to 24. And I feel like that was a really young age for like most of the dudes who were good at it were in their forties. Yeah, for sure. It's old XC dudes that don't have that quick right. snap anymore right. for super hard starts that just kind of, and that's, it's kind of the natural progression is to go longer. Yeah. So that was like the, the guys who were taking me were like the shop owners. Like I started hanging out with some of the guys who owned shops in town and they were all into it. So as far as I knew, that was mountain biking. Yeah. So I went to quite a lot of those and I, and I got really obsessed with it. Like I have a personality of like pretty obsessive driven person. So when I do stuff, I like kind of get a little over the top about obsessing over it. So I would ride like 30 hours a week and and uh just got so so fit and 
I mean, I've never been fit like that in any other point in my life, but got really obsessed with it and ended up doing pretty well. Like I could go, I raced single speed too. Cause I had this like $450 Gary Fisher rig and that's what I had. So I would race single speeds everywhere. And there was a lot of races where fuck, you'd lap, I could like lap the field in the single speed and then finish on the podium overall, like at 12 hour. I remember 12 hour of Solly, I lapped the single speed field and finished third overall, did like 130 some miles in like 11 and a half hours or something. And that was one that was like, I felt like I was like doing it, you know, it was a wild feeling. Something about ultra endurance racing was like really, really cool. The, the like mental state that you would get in at like deep, deep, deep in that pain cave, you could reach this state of euphoria that was like very existential. Like you were in another dimension and you'd stay in that, that world, like after the race for multiple hours. I mean, I remember finishing 12 hour races or even eight hour races and feeling like you were coming down off drugs. Like it was wild wild euphoric feeling so that really hooked me about it like i didn't do it to like go and participate like i was doing it to like i'm gonna reach this next level like i'm gonna go eight hours as hard as i can and then i'm gonna feel like i'm like in another world so to me it was like a real it was like a mind bender and like i was kind of addicted to the mind bender aspect of it more than anything but i carried that on like kind of through college and then i started um I started going to the collegiate races. We didn't have a collegiate team at UT, but I, I like had run into some guys who said that they had had one at a previous point who were also UT students. So I filled out some paperwork and me and my girlfriend, I started dating this girl, Emily, and that was a long time ago. We're still together, (laughs) but we like forged the paperwork to go race uh, collegiate. Like the school wasn't I remember I brought this paperwork to this like administrative person and they were like, no, we're not putting, cause they had to put like a seal on it for us to go and participate in this like collegiate race league. We had to have all this paperwork. And one of the things they wanted was like a seal. And I remember I like, I don't know how, but somehow I like forged these documents so that we could race collegiate in the, in this series. And I think it was something to do with wanting to go to national championships. Like in order to get out of class, like I needed some crazy paperwork and we made it happen, but we did a season of racing collegiate and that was awesome. And that was kind of a, an eye opener of dual slalom and um, downhill. Like that was kind of new to me. So that's really where I like kind of got the first experience of like multi-disciplines or going out to race omniums. <laughs> But then it really set in like, as soon as I graduated college, I was like all into racing at that point. And I was training like insane amount of hours. So right after college, I went and did the pro cross country tour for a season. So I got to go race in like Fontana and Missoula, Montana and went to Wisconsin. Like I did a full series. I think I only missed one like Bonelli or something, but I did all the other ones. And, uh, I did okay. Like kind of like mid pack pro rider. And, but I could do some of the, I did some of the ultra endurance ones that were out there, like the whiskey, uh, whiskey off-road. It was the first year they did that. So I went to that the, the first year, which was cool. Cause there was like a lot of legends that were there that like, were like dudes that I had heard about and got to like line up with those guys. And I did okay there. I raced sea otter. I could pretty consistently stay like mid pack 
at any of the pro endurance or XC stuff. But while I was out there is when I, I started racing more super D and like, especially at like Fontana racing super D at Fontana. And it had a really good mix of like downhill riders and XC riders. That's where I was like, really got into the super D and we did sun Valley. Sun Valley had a great super D track. Uh, Missoula, Montana had an awesome super D track. So super D was really the entrance to full gravity. I was at the XC races and I was like, well, I'll sign up for Super D too. And, and then I really quickly realized that I was like very, very interested in Super D. And so after a season of XC racing, I did a season of cyclocross right afterwards. And I raced for this guy out of North Carolina, Robert Marion. And he was like a really great role model for me at the time, I think. I was like my young 20s and Robert was like 30 and he was running this like super professional program and managing it himself. And that was not happening in the Southeast. Like Robert, Robert was a one of a kind coming out of the Southeast and putting together like a pro team that could go and compete at all these national events and hold up well. Um, so I did a whole season with Robert and his cyclocross program. And we did like, I don't know, probably 30 some cyclocross races one winter, which I really liked. I think. Um, if I could go back and race any fitness-based sport, it would be cyclocross because the vibe was cool. Like being on the track was, it was really cool. It's kind of a party atmosphere too. Party atmosphere for sure. Yeah. Getting hand ups and stuff and like people screaming and getting loose. And we were going to all the biggest ones too, mostly in the Northeast. It's like cyclocross is really predominantly a Northeastern sport as far as I'm concerned. I think like the Northeast dominates cyclocross. Um, and, uh, dude, like those Gloucester, Gloucester, that race wild dude in Rhode Island. Oh my God. Um, that was so cool. Like next level. So yeah, that was a cool experience. I was okay at cyclocross. I wasn't that good at it. It was a different, it was a different type of fitness that like I got through like the Robert had me racing as a cat three, like his rules when, when he asked me to come onto the team, I think more than anything, he wanted somebody to power wash his bikes, which is fine. (laughs) Like Somebody's got to do the power washing. So Robert offered me a ride to go. He's like, I'll take you to all the races. You know, you don't have to pay for anything. Um, you don't have to pay for anything, but you got to race cat three and you got to help us pit me and the other pro rider, Robert and the other pro rider. And, uh, so I went for it. Like it seemed like a cool experience. So I went for it. And, uh, so he told me like that I was going to race cat three and, and like at the time, I guess I just had no extra cash or maybe, maybe he forced me to, I can't remember, but I would be the last one to register. I would sign up day of, and in cycle cross, if you're cat three, your registration is really like how your call up is based on when you register is when you get your call up. So we were going to these huge UCI races. So they would sell out cat three races with 120 riders and, uh, I'd be on the last row. So you got 119 people in front of you. And, uh, Robert would tell me like, if you can ride through the field and win every race that you go to, then you can upgrade and race in the pro category. So I was like on a mission to, to do it. And, uh, by mid season, I had figured it out enough. Like, Cause it was a, it's like a roadie game. And I, I had no clue how to pace that. Like it was not in my discipline at all. 
by mid season though, I'd kind of figured it out and I could, uh, I could start to get the wins. Like I think maybe jingle cross was the first one. I think I got a win at jingle cross the first time where there was like a sellout 120 person field started the last row road through the field to win. And, uh, that was a cool feeling. So I was like on a high after that and won like a handful of races. And then I did one, I did one race as an elite or two. I went to nationals and I went to Bend, Oregon and just got this shit kicked out of me. Like so bad, dude. Like pro cyclocross is those dudes are nuts, man. Like honestly, like, and then to see people that can go cross discipline, like, uh, Adam Craig to watch him, to watch him go cross discipline and, and go out and run top 20 with those dudes or like, while racing EWS, like mad respect for dudes like that. But cyclocross at the highest level was like pretty wild. Those dudes are, they're out there on what they can do for sure. But yeah, after that season, I, uh, I guess I started racing enduro. It was, um, I ran into a dude, I ran into a buddy like, um, who was racing cross country and he hit me up and he's like, Hey, I'm trying to start this program. For, to race enduro for pivot like and i and he was also really into super d so we worked something out and he like put together a program and had all the sponsors lined up for us to have bikes and suspension and tires and the whole works so i started racing for mackie and yeah me and mackie and sid became really good friends and we got to travel all over together for like two years we went all through the u.s we went down to South America, to New Zealand, uh, through Europe. I had an awesome time with them. Like two years, me, Mackie, and Sid, like renting cars. And I'd bring out my truck, my sprinter and the trailer in the summer. But those were like the first years of enduro. So it was cool. It was like straight up half and half of like cross country dudes and downhill dudes. And the races were different than they are now, I think, where they were it was realistic to come from cross country and be able to like compete. But for sure, like the downhill dudes were kind of smoking all the XC dudes. But so I did, I guess it was year two and year three of Enduro world series. And the first year I got to do a bunch of races. We did maybe six or something. And we got to go to some of the Crankworks events. Yeah. That was an awesome year. We, we started, we started in New Zealand and we went, to New Zealand for three months and we rented a house there and like we stayed on the South Island for two months and then went up to Rotorua for a month. And I think that was probably the most going to New Zealand was probably like the most, um, influential mountain bike destination that I've ever seen there. They were on a whole nother level that year. We got to go to Whistler. I think I had been to Whistler once before, but we went to Whistler and uh, we went to, to Queenstown and we went through like France and Italy, but definitely Queenstown was like the gnarliest place I'd ever seen. So yeah, that was a, that was a cool experience getting those two years of Enduro, Enduro World Series and like doing all the US Enduro races. The second year I had a really unfortunate wrist injury early at the season. I guess we were Maybe that was year two we were in New Zealand. Because year one, we went uh, South America. We were in like Chile. We raced um, south of Chile for the Enduro World Series. And then year two, we started in New Zealand. And I broke my wrist like round one, Rotorua. Probably, I think it was the first stage. Like 
three minutes into the first stage and it was like raining really badly. I broke my wrist, like pretty grossly broke my wrist and kept riding, like finished the race, had to fly home after that with like, I had, we had been down there for three months. So I had three bike bags flying home with three bike bags and a broken wrist was rough. was really rough, but <laughs> that wrist injury, uh, really changed a lot. Cause I dealt with that. I dealt with some kind of poor medical advice for a handful of years and couldn't get my wrist to heal. And that was really a turning point from like being so focused on racing to like having to being basically forced to explore other options. Cause I mean, at that point in my life, I was a hundred percent committed that I was like going to keep racing. And I felt like I was on like an upward trajectory of like being able to put the pieces together and then just really battled wrist surgeries and seen different doctors and it kept going on and on. And it, and it, and that really forced me to like explore some other avenues. And that's when I bought my house in Knoxville, started renting a ton of equipment and building trails. Like it was like not really an option, I guess at that point I was like, I just didn't want to like lose touch of everything I had going on, but I couldn't ride for like, there was like a two year period where I couldn't really ride because my wrist was just destroyed. So that really opened the world of trail building to me. Yeah. So let's talk about Windrock and the history there. That's got a pretty deep history of, you used to go there to train before you started. Yeah. What are you doing now? Yeah. Yeah. I really, Windrock started becoming a big part of my training when I was racing Enduro. Um, and it was, yeah, it was like my home spot, which I wasn't spending a lot of time in Knoxville those years. Like I was really on the road a lot, but Windrock became like my home spot. And there, um, there was a couple trails that were still like getting maintained by a local guy here, Alex Ullman. And he was kind of maintaining what he could out there, like just so he could ride it. And there was some like another group of guys like from Kentucky that were helping doing some maintenance. Like when they would come out and ride, they would leaf blow something, you know, but Windrock was this spot that was really built up in 99 to like 2003. It had a really good peak and it was kind of during those Norba days. And, uh, it was pretty race focused. Like a lot of the guys that were participating in digging there, they were racing Norba and, they were running their own races there and stuff. And it, it had this, like, I think during the Norba downhill days, everyone knew what Windrock was. Um, it was a cool spot that people would come to like between races. Like, so if you were traveling the Norba series, you might stop here and ride with the local boys, but they weren't hosting like any big races at the time. And it was all just like volunteer driven. It was, uh, on an old coal mine. So it was like, there wasn't any permits. Like it was kind of a free for all, but it died during the recession. It just died off. It basically disappeared. And then it kind of got revitalized by like a second group who moved in and that, that crew kept it alive for another few years. But it was like, I don't know. I see the videos of when they had it going really good in like 2002, 2003 watch those videos and like they had that place pretty dialed like there was a lot of trails and they were fresh and like there was a lot of good riders that were here riding on them but i think 
the recession hit the area pretty hard and downhill really faded for those years. And then it, it, from like, you know, 2009 to 2013, it was kind of falling off. It was overgrown. You couldn't, the trails were gone basically at this point. There was like two trails that were still good, but it just really probably from Alex Ullman more than anything, he was still keeping the race scene going. He, he hosted a race, a couple races there. And, uh, Nico happened to come down to those and like some other pretty fast U S kids at the, at that point, Lucas Shaw and Walker Shaw. So really from Alex putting those races on, it kind of kept the fire alive with like the next gen. And Alex took me out there. Like Alex showed me all the trails and, and, um, yeah, I, I rode with him a lot. Those that there was one year where I was riding with him a lot and, um, he kind of moved on to other stuff. And then there was like, nobody maintaining really anymore and then uh when i was racing enduro world series like nico was i guess he was racing for trek at that point but he he lived up in pennsylvania at the time but he would come down here and like stay for a few days at a time to test all of his new products and stuff and me and nico just ended up seeing each other all the time like me and emily would go over there and be shuttling during the week and Nico would come down with his mom would drive and Luca and Walker and Nico's brother, Logan, normally Max Morgan, like kind of an all-star crew of junior kids would come ride. And, uh, so it got to the point where we were maintaining like the one good downhill track. Like we would go out and work on it together and we were riding all the time during the week and we were just like hanging out there all the time. Like, and we just kind of met some of the people that were involved in the off-road part because Winrock is a huge piece of property. So Winrock sits in uh, the Cumberland Mountain Range and it's 72,000 acres of privately owned property. It has served as a spot for coal mining. It's uh, an active timber harvest is going on at all times. There's over like 200 live oil wells there. So it's really like a piece of private property that's being used for its natural resources, like really heavily. And uh, there's an, a huge off-road community here. Jeeping and side-by-sides has been big since I was a kid. It was the biggest thing, like off-road was like the biggest thing going when I was a kid. That and like dirt track racing, like dirt track racing is really big in this area. So between like dirt track and off-road, motorsports are alive and well in Tennessee and always have been. There was some like awesome glory years where, where Winrock was a sick spot and like it was producing really good talent. Um, I think one of the, one of the biggest names that was living in this area was Garrett Betoff and he was like racing the world cups. He's doing really well. Doug Ferguson was racing like the Norba series and like doing really well as like a Norba national racer. So it had its foundation in like being this kind of training zone for, for guys who wanted to race downhill. And that really never changed. Um, when, uh, you know, when Nico and I started getting more serious about like, I guess we were running into some people that were running the off-road park and they, and they were started asking us questions like, Hey, what, what are you doing out here? Like what's going on? Cause the off-road park was really starting to gained some traction and they had more employees, they had security guards, they were starting to build their general store. So they were really developing the off-road park and they noticed us hanging out there all the time. And one of the security guards 
who's still there. He's an awesome dude. He really vouched for us. Like he was just one of the employees and he saw us there all the time and he brought it to his boss and said, Hey, there's these kids here. They're all, they're here all the time. They seem to really understand the sport. And, uh, you know, I think we should maybe pursue this a little bit more. And I guess that was like seven years ago, we started having conversations with the landowners about making, you know, making something legitimate. For me, when things really started, the conversations really started getting more serious about it. It was kind of a good timing situation. Like I was pretty well, I was dealing, I was dealing with my wrist injury and I didn't have a lot of, a lot going on as far as um, plans for like the future. Cause I didn't really know what the outcome of my wrist was going to be. So me and Nico kind of through a handful of days, we kind of put together a shoddy like business plan. Like we really kind of had no idea what the game plan was going to be, but we felt like we could, um, we felt like we could put on really good events and then the events would like bring the traffic. We also felt like we had a good enough audience. Like there's, we had a good enough audience that we felt like we could get the word out there really well. We had enough contacts in the industry at this point. So yeah, all things kind of just lined up right place at the right time type of thing. You talked about the acreage size, but like Windrock is, you go to the top of Windrock, how, how tall is it? And why were people coming here yeah. to ride? Yeah. Like what makes it different? Yeah. It's, it is a huge mountain. Like these are there, you know, the top of it is at, uh, 3,300 foot, but the base is at like seven, you know, so you got, you got 2,300 foot of drop and it's steep. It is like steep, steep mountain. So it's very similar to like a lot of the stuff I have rode in, uh, in Italy and France and Queenstown, Queenstown's Queenstown is very similar where the lift, the lift in Queenstown is like short, you know, it's a tiny runs, you know, minute, minute 40 runs or something, but so steep and so gnarly. So pretty similar type of mountain where it's, I mean, the mountain lends itself to like gnarly, gnarly world cup style downhill tracks. Yeah. So it's kind of the perfect, it's the perfect venue for it. Honestly, you couldn't really have a better spot. And I grew up like at the base of this mountain. I went to middle school, like 10 minutes from the base of this mountain. Every day driving to school, you're looking up at this huge mountain coming into, coming into school. So it's just, it's begging for it. You know, it's, it's not, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people think of Tennessee and they're like, well, there's no mountains there. Like you couldn't build a downhill park. There's no mountains there. And I guess people who haven't been to East Tennessee, they just, they just don't know. But well, yeah. 2,300 feet's no joke. And the best part, at least what I think the best part is, is that you got that elevation, but yeah. you're not at elevation. Yeah. Right. So you can still breathe. Right. You can breathe in the winter, but when it comes summertime and it's humid here, like humidity is like, uh, it's the altitude of the Southeast, man. Like, Oh, it for sure is. It's a whole thing that people are very turned off by humidity for good reason. It's, it's quite something like, I feel like if I didn't grow up here, I wouldn't be able to tolerate it, but like I'm used to it at this point, but July through September, it's brutal here. I mean, the heat, and the humidity is pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the evolution. You know, you kind of get into how you and Nico got this uh, loose business plan together. Yeah. And we were, you know, 
we were out there riding today and talking about how it went from, you know, how, how, how it's exceeded our expectations. Totally. So let's talk about that evolution of what the original business plan, like how it's kind of scaled to where it is now. Yeah. Actually yeah. back up. Let's talk about what, what, who, what Windrock is for and who it's not for. And then we'll go back into the business plan. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good thing to get into. Right. Because the thing is, is Windrock's not for everybody. It's, it's absolutely not. And, um, it's not right now. It's not really trying to be for everybody. You know, fortunately we we're blessed with like an abundance of trail centers right now. There's so many trails out there and so many places to ride and there's amazing city parks and we have, I mean, Knoxville is just littered with all these amazing entry level trails and most communities now have that. So, you know, looking at it in that scope, you can, you can start to say, well, you can build parks that maybe aren't for everybody. Like this park is for a smaller group of people, but there's, there are a group of people that, that still need a spot to ride. So I think that the really advanced end of mountain biking, like when, when it's no longer doing it for you to ride, like the really easy trails is not, not cutting it for you. Windrock's the spot for you where it's, it is gnarly. No matter what level of rider you are, there's stuff there that's going to challenge you. So from the beginning, we really felt like we didn't need to, we didn't need to, um, appeal to every single rider. We just needed to appeal to the riders that we knew were out there that didn't have a spot to ride. And there's a lot of them. And, and you could run a sustainable business off of a smaller group of people that isn't, you know, isn't got a spot to ride that's doing it for them. So from day one, when we looked at, we, when we looked at starting Winrock, we knew that we didn't really want it to change very much. We're basically commandeering a set of trails that have been free up to this point, you know, or they started having a, a small fee to ride there. So for us, we already knew that we're basically acquiring a group of people's trails that have come and gone, you know, they've moved on, but at the same time, like we weren't planning on building brand new, fresh trails. And so we also weren't going to destroy what was there because what was there was phenomenal for, for a training grounds for like downhill kids. So our business model was like pretty rough, like sketch it out on some pieces of paper. I mean, I think between Nico and I, we're not exactly like scholarly people, you know? And, uh, but we we felt like the numbers were there that we could put on these events and, and the numbers would grow with the sport we felt like it would come back around and there would be like a solid increase in numbers. So when we got started, it was all hand-built trails, but one. We built one machine-built trail to try and like make something that was like a little bit easier than the downhill tracks. Cause like the downhill tracks that were there, even when we restored them, like we spent weeks and weeks like restoring old trails that were like, we were just searching through the woods, just like uncovering gems, like underneath leaves. And that went on for like two years where we were still finding stuff that like had been built at some point and was gone. So we really did a lot of restoration those first years, but our plan was really just to cater to the race scene, like just to the downhill race scene and 
put on events that were just for downhill racers so that they could um, have a place to practice before going to the World Cups. And uh, it worked out, honestly. Like, I, I didn't expect it to, wor- to work out quite how it did. Like, when I went into it, it was, I had 10 other projects going on at the same time. I was pursuing 10 other avenues of income. And it stayed like that kind of for the first couple years. Like, I feel like it was, um, I was putting a lot into it, but I was at the same time, like making sure that I was staying balanced with everything else so that, you know, if it didn't work out, I had other options. And as the years have gone on, it's been, the commitment has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper where it's like, we're, we're in so deep now. Like it's all I, all I think about, all I work on now, but it's panned out. I mean, it went from when we had our first race there six years ago, Nico had started up this series called downhill Southeast. And he asked me to come help prep some of the tracks for him. And when we did the Winrock one, he asked me to prep the track and tape it. And, and we had, I want to say like 40, 40 riders show up for our first race. And this past year at the Tennessee national, we had 750 riders. So in six years, we went from 40 to 750. And I mean, I absolutely didn't see that happening. I, I never would have dreamed of it. Well, but, and you went from operating on just weekends only yeah. to now you're seven days a week. Yeah. We're seven days a week now. Yeah. It was, it was only Saturday, Sunday when we started the park, like we didn't, we didn't even know where to begin to try and go get a loan. So we weren't even considering like loaning money to do any of this. Like I think we each, we sold like all of our race bikes from the year. I sold my sprinter, basically just sold anything that we had that was of any value. We sold it off and we bought like a really turd of an excavator and uh, we were renting some equipment and we were just going at it with like so little budget. We bought two school buses, like old school buses that were from the the rafting companies around here. One was from the rafting company and one was from the high school I went to. And we gutted the seats out of them, like in my backyard. Like it was just full, you know, make it happen type of situation. But the ball got rolling pretty quick. Like the buses were, the bus, by the time we realized the buses were a terrible idea, we had already started to grow some numbers where we're like, okay, let's buy a truck and build a trailer. So we bought a, bought a truck and I custom built the trailer and the, and the seats on it at my dad's place, the ball started rolling pretty quick, pretty quick, honestly, by, by like year three, it was starting to get to the point where I was like, all right, I I think I can be fully committed on this, but it was organic as it gets at the beginning. Like it was just like two young kids who had no clue what they were doing and just like figured if we put in a hundred percent, we would get something out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And we went, you know, I was there today and it was, it was pretty raw. It was wet. Yeah. I was living in, in a cloud. Yeah. I brought the wrong bike, but it's the only bike I have. And Sean quickly put me on a downhill bike. So thank you. Yeah. I, I let you, which I've heard it a dozen times. If you said, <laughs> I'm comfortable on this bike, I'm going to stay on this bike. And I said, all right, I'll let you ride one lap. And, uh, and then I 
when I think when I asked you if you wanted to ride downhill bike, you were ready for it. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's trail bikes, big long travel trail bikes are fun. Like you you can ride a long travel trail bike there and have a and have a great time. But there's no doubt that it's built for downhill bikes. And yeah. we're keeping that downhill bike community alive. I mean, I I just the 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 numbers are there. I mean, there's a there's tangible evidence that like downhill bikes are getting sold in America because of what we've got going on. Like we're keeping that going. And uh I mean that the numbers are there to show it for sure. And and I'm 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 glad that it's working out. I feel like downhill downhill was dying. Like it was on its way out, at least in the US. I mean, I think it was going stronger than ever in France and Italy. Like when we were getting started, I think France and Italy were were going strong. New Zealand was still going strong. Like the rest of the world was not letting go of downhill, but the US was undoubtedly letting go of downhill. And some of it is where do you do it? Right. If you can't, if you have nowhere to do it, yeah. of course you're not going to do it. And even the spots in the US, like, I think that's the biggest thing that I appreciate about all my time getting to travel and seeing these parks is that when I came to the US, when I went to the US races that were in the bike parks, Winter Park and Keystone and the handful of Colorado parks and, and California parks that are out there, no, no slam on them. Like I'm, a, I think it's really cool what they're doing, but like, that is not the sport of downhill. Like that's not going to sell downhill bikes. Really. You can go ride any of those bike parks on trail bikes and probably have a better time because the way they lay it out, you're like, you're having to pedal around and go from this spot to that spot. Like, so the downhill that was left in the United States was not downhill. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't what I was seeing in France and Italy sure wasn't what was happening at the Enduro world series tracks. Wasn't what was going on at world cups. Like, so the venues were gone. I mean, they were gone. And uh, yeah, I feel like the sport was two years away from disappearing, honestly. Well, and we, you know, at numerous times throughout the day when we were riding, we'd pull over and you'd talk about, you know, something going on at this trail or that trail that we weren't obviously going to ride today. Yeah. But like, like horse face. Yeah. And I asked you, I'm like, what inspired you to do this? Yeah. And I think you said something about, you know, stuff you'd seen in France. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about horse face. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I guess when horse face kicked off, like me and Dakota was living in my yard and, uh, and we were spending a ton of time together and Nico was coming over and staying like every, we had a cool scene going on at my house. Like there was a, there was like a crew of dudes here all winter and uh we were building a lot of new trail at that point but i think we had all like got home from maybe it was the end of a world cup season and i think they had just finished at uh andorra or something and they were all fired up about steep tracks and uh we set out to just like rake and ride like the steepest track we could possibly find and uh and just cut in like a couple of little catches where it was like life-threatening you needed the support. Uh, in the first iteration of it, me, Dakota, and Nico cut it in in like three days, maybe, with like very little effort. Basically, just like a leaf blower and like you know some loppers, and uh, and we started lapping it, 
and got it going pretty good. But yeah, it's like, it's ridiculously steep and it's, it's basically un, it's unmaintainable other than like, we'll till it up and get it going for like a few weeks and ride it for a few weeks when it's like good. And when it's good, it's, it's pretty rowdy. It's so, so, so steep. Like you can't understand until you stand at the top of it. Like I took you to the top of it to look down it. Like you can, you can see down the trail so far cause it's so steep. But I mean, that style of trail is not, was not happening anywhere around here. And we were all like fired up about it. I think basically, cause they were getting their, they were getting their doors blown off. Like at these races, like Andorra, like they were showing up to Andorra and being way over their head as far as like being able to, to ride at that grade. So yeah, that was, that was a cool project. It was, it was fun. Yeah. It's, it's big. Let's talk about, you know, we're talking today when we're on the shuttle, let's talk about tracks versus trails. Yeah. This is something that I preach a lot about because, um, it's, it's like a fundamental, fundamental understanding of like the difference between what we do at Winrock and what's going on in all the city trails. And I th- it's a, it's something that I'm glad to voice on your show because, you know, a lot of your guests and a lot of your, a lot of your podcasts are really geared towards working with public land, building trails that are through foundations and advocacy groups. And, um, I feel like we get some backlash from that community. It's hard for that community to understand what we have going on and to dismiss, to dismiss us before they really like dive into it. So to me, I think what I've been preaching a lot lately is this fundamental difference between tracks and trails and their the difference between them is what really, um, is what really like you, you have to, you have to look at this in, in this light where a track is something that is constantly changing, constantly getting maintained. It's, um, it's wide, you know, it's, it's used for the purpose of downhill and it follows a lot of the mentality of motocross track where you go, you go to ride a track knowing that it's, ready to go. You can, you can walk it, make sure it's good. And then you can send like fully on it. There's a lot of line choice. You know, there might be five or six different lines through one section. It might be 15 feet, 20 feet wide, but it's just a different mentality of mountain biking. Like it's, it's a different sport really, you know? So if you go into a lot of Windrock things thinking that you're getting a trail experience, which to me, a trail experience is something that's, it's more about like having like a exercise, doing exercise in nature, right? To me, like trails are like something that you, you're there because you want to experience nature. You want to, you want to relax your head and get this, you know, endurance, endurance ride in. So they're two very different things. I think Winrock, we focus on tracks, like we build tracks and we, we do build some trails. Like when we build tracks, uh, for Enduro world series, like a lot of that stuff, I'd consider those more like trails where they're a little bit narrower. They're hand cut, single track bench benched in, but 90% of our stuff there it's tracks and you can count on them being prepped. I mean, they're constantly changing. They're ever growing. Like, we call our trails, like the trails that we do have signs on the names of them, like 
you know, you have trail one, well, trail one's moved 10 times. Like we might move it a hundred feet to the right one year, a hundred feet to the left. Like we'll call it the same name, but you can pretty well guarantee that if you were here, if you haven't been here in six months, you best believe that almost every trail is going to look drastically different. Um, cause we're constantly, constantly modifying them and changing them, tilling them up, pushing them above a tree, below a tree. Um, just so that we can, you know, we can go out and have a different workout every time. Like, like to us, when we go out and train, like we want to have a spot that we can have kind of a similar track, but slightly different for every day that we ride. And normally like when we ride days that I ride, we'll go out and, uh, we'll ride one, we'll ride one track all day. Um, we'll pick the track at the start of the day and we'll run the same track all day. So we might run 10, 12 laps on just one track all day. It's, it's more a matter of like dialing it in and getting the speed like faster and faster and faster and working on, you know, whatever your, whatever your slow spot is on a track, like trying to fix those parts in your riding. So, yeah, I think to me, like if you can't get past the difference between tracks and trails, you have a hard time, like really understanding what Windrock is and what we're trying to do. And I don't think that the philosophy of Windrock should be applied to every network of trails. Like I, I think the opposite of that, you know, like, but I think we need more Windrocks out there because to me, the sport could not evolve without very elite level downhill racing technology, technology with suspension and linkages and anything to do with anything to do with the bikes. It's getting driven from downhill racers. They're, they're really pushing this equipment to its max. And then that's trickling down into all the other disciplines and then eventually reaching the consumer. So I think without, without continuing to pursue like the highest level of elite racing, we're, we're going to sacrifice uh, innovation. So to me, racing is still very important. And like, I think there's obviously so many other important things in the industry. They all have to work together, but downhill racing, it can't go away because to me, it's what's really driving quality innovation that's trickling down to every other discipline. So it's important that we keep it alive. And well, every bike is longer, Lawrence Slacker, right? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, like an XC bike bike right now, even what they're racing XC world cup, it's like, it's trickle down for sure. The dampers and the forks are like so much better. And that technology is coming from race proven equipment on the world cup tracks. And the U S is struggling. I mean, you look at the, you look at the overall results and it's just predominantly French, uh, French kids, really Italian it kids. Is. And I mean, the UK has a, UK has a strong scene and then New Zealand has a handful of athletes, but U S downhill is, is really suffering. And that's not a great thing seen as like a lot of the industry comes out of the U S. So yeah, I feel like we can't let it go. We got to keep it going. Well, one of the things you touched on that I never even thought about until we're having this conversation now is that if you're, cha- if you're constantly changing the way the tracks are at Windrock, that's really good for the consumer too, because it doesn't ever get old. Yeah. It's always a new experience. Yeah. And the more you get to know, like 
the more you get to know Windrock, it's really laid out like um like if you're into like BMX trails or something and you go ride a good dirt jump spot and you start to like unlock all these transfer lines and like, you know, one set of jumps becomes 20 different lines at a good set of trails. And this style of downhill park is kind of the same thing. Like the more you get to know the park. Yeah. We have six trails that have signs on them. Like there's six trails that are named or maybe eight trails. I don't know. But then you start to like look around in the forest and there's lines going through everywhere that are linking different sections of trail up. And like you get on the chairlift, if you're new to Windrock and you get on the chair and there's like a 12 year old kid that's like, oh, we're going to go cave boy to caveman, transfer over to Talladega down old school. And then we'll finish with uh, the Red Bull Ravine. Like there's this whole language that happens on the chair now of like what, what lines people are linking up because they'll do six trails to get to the bottom and they'll link them up in all these different ways. So if you're new to the park and you get on the chair and you hear like a little kid just like ranting this line that he's going to go down, like it's probably pretty overwhelming and, and like a little bit uh, daunting, but the more you get to know the park, like you start to like understand that language and you know what people are talking about. And uh, you know, your six trails now become 30 trails and every time you go there, you've got something else that you can work on. And, you know, you might want a day where you want a slightly longer track. That's a little bit less compressions and more corners, or you might want a track that's faster with heavier compressions. So you can really like suit your day based on like what you're, what you're after. On the first round we took, how many, how many trails or how many tracks did we link up? We linked up, uh, four, four different trails we linked up for a pretty long we made like kind of one of the longer laps you can get out of the mid-mountain drop in so, mid-mountain you only operate during the week and then you go top yeah for the weekends yeah so yeah monday to thursday we do um we just run the mid-mountain and we have like a green trail zone that we stop at too so we, we have three stops we'll run the bottom two stops during the week and then friday saturday sunday we'll run the we'll run the highest drop off if the weather's cooperating like in the real heavy like mud season it can be a little bit dangerous because the first two drops are accessed by a paved it's paved all the way up paved road so it's like the perfect shuttle time it takes um takes about eight minutes to get to the top and and three minutes to get down so it's like a pretty good ratio but then on the weekends, we'll run up to the windmill and you kind of get like a little bit more of like a backcountry experience. You can run some of the Enduro World Series style tracks that we've got. And that, that adds like an additional thousand feet. Yeah, it's like an extra thousand feet to the top. Those are long runs. Like they're long. Like if you're not, if you're stopping and going and stopping and going, it's 15, 15, 20 minutes just to get down. Yeah. So it's legit downhill stuff. Yeah. I mean, like you'd find in the mountains, like, yeah. and I mean, when I say mountains, we're in mountains, but I'm talking like the Rockies, Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. where, where your base elevation is yeah. a lot higher. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the vert, the vert here is, is greater than a lot of chairlift access parks, like a chairlift access park. They can only build, unless they're building a gondola, like any kind of like four person quad, like the cable is typically only going a thousand foot just because of the logistics of chairlifts. Like you're not getting a ton of vert on a four person quad with, with the gondola, you'll find places like maybe like Mount St. Anne where they just go and go and go and go where they're a couple thousand foot of vert access. But 
Yeah, no, it's as far as downhill park goes, it's pretty on par with anything else that's out there. Um, you're getting a pretty similar amount of vert. It's all that you really want. Like realistically, like your hands and like arms can only take, you know, so much of a beating. So I feel like having the majority of your downhill tracks being in that three minute zone and then the majority of your enduro tracks being in like the seven, eight minute zone, like that's pretty much the ideal situation. Um, it does, it, you know, that's realistic with what is going on in racing right now. So, you know, it's everything you could possibly want, really. Let's detour into the public versus private world. Yeah. Yeah. I think it follows kind of the same as like the tracks versus trails thing. And I think it's something we're going to see a lot more of right now where public parks and private parks can cater to like two different demographics of the sport and they need you know, they, they need to work together well, but at the same time, like there's, there's other avenues out there. Like, you know, if you're, if you're in an area that you're having trouble getting the type of trails you want, or you're not able to get, you're not able to get, um, permits going or access to build trails on public lands, the private route is totally legitimate. Um, and very attainable. I think I see more and more private trail systems coming up in the next five years and it's an awesome avenue i'm glad i went down it i think um i i was lucky to go down this path i didn't see it really coming i was lucky to go down this path but now that i'm down it like the private sector offers something so cool for a trail builder for me it's a art project getting out there and digging is like living art sculpture and as an artist you know the best situation possible is to have the most freedom um and Winrock to me has been a piece of art over the past six years um more so than anything else like getting contract work to go build trails to me never really feels the same like I'm always kind of you know digging for what the client wants or what the contractor that you're, if you're subbing something, you know, what the contractor wants. So it's not really the same, you know, the, the public, the public Avenue as an artist, you can do what you want. You know, you can really shape whatever it is that you want. You mean the private Avenue, the private Avenue. Sorry. Yeah. So I'm really glad I went down it. I think that it's going to be for a lot more people. I think there's going to be, there's so many more trail builders. Now I was, lucky to get in when I got in and uh but I think there's going to be a lot more and there should be a lot more it's a really awesome it's a really awesome creative avenue to go down that's pretty darn attainable um and has a lot of room for making mistakes really like there's not other there's not that many other trade fields out there construction type fields out there where you can have so much margin for mistakes like we're at a young point in trail manufacturing where mistakes are still getting made, you know, and it's not like you're going to, you're not, you're not going to get shut down because of it necessarily. Like you can learn from it and fix things. And so, yeah, I think that the private sector has been really awesome. It's been cool to see like Nico branched off a few years ago and um, wanted more time to focus on racing. And, and, uh, and then he got kind of involved in this, Canuga project that's all e-bike focused 
And that's been awesome to watch him and Callie build that up. You know, they've built, they've built a park that's completely revolves around e-bikes and it's like catered for e-bikes. And I think that that's an awesome, an awesome way to like build up a set of trails that maybe you couldn't get away with in public trail systems. But I also see like short chairlifts being a really good avenue. Like I think short chairlifts, I know they just put one at, uh, well, there's po- there's that poison in Texas that's cool. Or Spider Mountain, I mean. Spider Mountain, yeah. Spider Mountain in Texas that seems like it's really cool. And uh, Woodward just put one in Park City. That's like a super short lift that has like some flow trails under it. So I think that that, that style of park, there's one that just popped up in Ohio that I'm really stoked on. It's called Horns Hill. And uh, it seems like it's all like community driven project where they're like really wanted a set of trails that was like true jump trails and they found a good spot for it. And they're running shuttles there on the weekend. But yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope Windrock has inspired other people who were maybe in the same situation as me to um, go for it and like start up their own bike park in whatever way. Because I think it's, it's something that the sport needs. Like you can only get so good at riding a bike in most, most public places. Like it can only go so far, you know, and it, and it also becomes a liability at some point. Like if you want to be absolutely shredding in a set of public trails, like at some point it's a liability. So yeah, I think it's important that everyone recognize that like, just cause like a kid like wants to absolutely shred his tires off of his bike. You can't like blame the kid, you know, you can't, you can't be a dick to the kid over it, you know, like they just need to have the right place to do that. You yeah. know, when you talk short chairless, what are we talking about for elevation? I think these, any of these places, even these city trails that are 300 foot avert, 400 foot avert, put a chairlift there. The, the price for a chairlift it is not that bad when you, when you break it down on how many people you're going to have riding in this thing. Like I really think that you could have a sustainable business model with 300 foot chairlifts in so many places. And yeah, I hope to see more of that. I think, I think that that Avenue is like even some of these old ski ski resorts that are like the cost for the cost for manufacturing snow is ridiculous. And also like environmentally kind of fucked and like just silly. Like let's stop faking ski hills and turn them all into bike parks. Like let's get real about it. Pumping snow in Tennessee or North Carolina, it's not going to work. Even some of these Northeastern parks, I mean, they need to dive into mountain biking, especially if you have the infrastructure already. Um, Oh, for sure. And if you think about it, like, yeah, those who know me closely know that I'm, I've been in the Alpine snow scene for year, my whole life. Yeah. And if you think about what you're talking about, you're making snow, you're running grooming equipment every single day, big diesel pieces of equipment yeah. to make things smooth. Yeah. And then what do you do to, to make a, a ski run? Yeah. Mowing trees down. You clear cut yeah. fall line hills. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. You know? It's a like kind of a hilariously unsustainable business model. That's like, I really don't know how it spread like so 
so in the fifties and sixties, it had, you know, yeah. obviously that's before our time, but that's really when you saw stuff like the littlest Hills popping up, like where I live up in Wisconsin, there's, yeah. In fact, there's a Facebook page that talks about like lost ski hills of Wisconsin. And it's yeah. centered around all these er- areas that were open for maybe 10 years in that era, mm-hmm. you know, but they made, they were, they're making stuff work and they're little, right? just like what we're talking about. Yeah. So mountain bike, I mean, obviously at the time that that was going on, the technology of mountain bikes was pretty garbage. Like the bikes were not, you couldn't, you couldn't really be doing what you're doing today. Like the bikes are so good now. I mean, when I started riding bikes, it was bad. They were really, really bad. So I guess I get it. Like it probably didn't really like make sense at that point, but now, I mean, the, these bikes are incredible what they can do and at a price that's even more wild. So any of these little ski lifts out there, if you live in a town that has a ski lift that shut down cause it couldn't afford it, figure out a business plan to buy that thing and get a part going. Cause I mean, it's, it's coming. There's a, there's a whole, there's a whole economy of gravity riding out there. That's we're on the, we're on the cusp of it. Maybe we'll do a podcast in 10 years and look back on this and like, see how many parks have come between now and then. But hopefully I hope so. I hope so. But one of the things you wanted to talk about was, um, downhill bikes. Yeah. And the future of downhill bikes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess perfect segue of it. Like we're, yeah. like I'm saying, like from 10 years ago to where we are now with a bike, it's incredible. And I don't see the level of engineering or like the, the amount of effort that's getting put into it is not going down. I mean, if anything, it's more and more and more effort getting put in. So I'm, I'm super excited about it where downhill bikes are going to go. I think that there's room for, there's room for them to get even better. Um, absolutely. Like we're not, it can be so much better. Um, I really think that where the bikes are now we'll look back, we'll look back and kind of have the same experience that we're having right now with bikes from 10 years ago, where I do think that they can get a lot better. I think, um, I think tire technology is going to get better. Suspension technology is going to get better. And yeah, I look forward to it. I think that there's more traction to be had out there. There's better, there's better support out there in this suspension platforms. So Winrock's been a Winrock's been a place of innovation from day one. Like having having SRAM and RockShox come out in our first couple of years and do their product testing there was like the best thing that could have ever happened, really, because it it kind of became like a proving grounds for World Cup guys. And um, I look forward to doing more of that in the future. Like our relationship with SRAM and RockShox has been awesome since then, and they've really helped. They've really helped from day one, like keep things going and supported our events. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see where these bikes are going to go. I I really think that we're, we're only just now like getting started on how good these things can be. Which is crazy to think because right now we think they're the, they're awesome. I mean, they're so much better than they were. Totally. Yeah. Like it's hard to complain about anything like realistically, like complaining about a bike right now. It's like, I mean, that's some real first world problems. Like. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a little ridiculous, you know. 
but still I'll get on a bike and be like, Oh yeah, this thing's not quite cutting it. Like that one's better. Can I ride that one still? Like, um, yeah, but yeah, I've, I've been stoked on downhill bikes. I'm, I'm really into what's happening with e-bikes right now. Like I don't, um, I don't know. E-bikes are, e-bikes are so cool to me. I've gotten to see all the different steps of bike, different types of bikes and e-bikes to me are like, has me more fired up about like backcountry riding than ever, or like really just like this whole new discipline of riding. I've had a couple of them now. And the one I've got right now is basically a downhill bike with a motor in it. And it's incredible. Like it's truly, I don't understand how it's, it's so good. It gets so much traction. It's so fast. It really has changed my outlook on trail riding or like even wanting to like travel to ride mountain bikes. Like my, my level for wanting to travel to ride mountain bikes has declined massively. Um, in the past handful of years, like I mostly just travel to ride dirt bikes now, but the e-bike thing has really opened up a whole new window to me where I'm like, I would be interested in going to some of these venues just to ride e-bikes there. Cause it's kind of got a new spark, a bit of a new fire for me. And that's a, that's an avenue of innovation. That's like, oh, there's, there's so much to go there. So much to go. Like every bit of the e-bike, there's something about it that could be better right now. So I feel like it's gotta be a heyday for engineers right now. Like surely that would be fun to be working on all the new innovation for e-bikes. Well, and how's that going to push the downhill bike? I mean, look at the braking technology that you need in an e-bike. Yes. Yeah, totally. And the tire technology. I think um, the biggest thing that I've noticed with e-bikes is the, the tires don't have quite the support. Like when you're really pushing these things hard, the tires aren't strong enough to, to like handle the G-forces and the brakes aren't powerful enough to, to like last a whole run and still provide like really strong power. So I think a lot of that e-bike technology will actually end up transferring to world cup to the world cup race scene. Like I think the brakes for sure, braking power could be stronger and the tires are, we're still seeing so many tire failures. Like the biggest thing you're seeing on the world cup track right now is, is wheels and tires failing. Like the, the number, number one thing to fail is tire wheel setup. So, you know, that, that innovation, I think needs to, needs to keep going for sure. Like there's, there's a lot of room for growth there. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I rode with you today with that, with your specialized and that. Yeah. I was riding the e-bike today. It's pretty awesome. You don't even notice it. Like, honestly, like riding it as a downhill bike, you're not upset about it. Like the weight is in a good spot. It's like very low. Um, and you know, it's just, you don't really notice the thing must weigh 60 some pounds. Like it's so heavy, but it rolls really fast and you like accelerate really fast. Like the, the speed you get back to speed really quick because of the weight. So I feel like the weight we're already on like a, people are like rethinking how much weight matters, but I think it can go even farther. Like the, the weight can really be completely insignificant when you put a motor in it. I mean, the same as any dirt bike. I mean, the way you can send on a, you know, 300 CC motorcycle right now in the woods is, um, is pretty incredible at 215 pounds or something. So 
with the e-bike thing, you, you kind of fall into that where it, it doesn't matter if they weigh 65, 70 pounds, as long as, um, as long as things are balanced and they're getting traction, it really makes no difference. Um, as far as I can see, but yeah. Let's segue it back into Windrock. Yeah. One of the things you guys are doing, which I think is a been a long time passion project of yours that you've wanted to pull off is the YouTube yeah. and content creation side of things. And what spurred me on that was that you just released an e-bike video yep. in the last day or so. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. We just, we just like eight weeks now into like trying to produce some like YouTube content and, uh, just the content production in general. Like when we started the park, I was producing all the photos that were coming out of there. And, uh, it was like, I, I loved shooting photos. It was like definitely a passion for me but it had become really hard to manage content production with machine operating and handling the, you know, weekend employees and keeping the shuttle trucks going. Like it was getting to be kind of out of control to take on all these roles. And this past winter, I, I, um, met like a South Carolina guy, Carson Fletch, who's, uh, super talented and he's, come on on board like full time now to help me produce content and he has a really similar vision to to what I have and he's great at you know he's great at he's great at framing and color composition and sound design like he's the full package dude and he was like working a you know kind of a full-time job at a production studio and I was bugging him like dude you're too you're too talented to be you're too talented to be out there like filming for you know, like the corporate world, like you need to get involved in mountain biking. And I was happy to be able to like provide the push for him to like escape from the production world and, and dive into like passion projects. So Carson's come on board full time and that's been super helpful. Like he's really dialed at, at filming and, and, uh, we're pretty fired up to like try and put out more content kind of behind the scenes of what goes on. So maybe we can like inspire another, you know, another group of people to, to build the next Windrock because it's out there. I mean, I think, I think putting out that content and showing people that like we're a crew of, you know, four or five trail builders and our, our guys work in the bike shop and our shuttle drivers, like all of us are riders and uh, we're all friends and just like get it all done together. So hopefully the content, like the behind the scenes stuff will, will help inspire other people to branch into building bike parks and, and doing, you know, doing what they love. Dan, making that connection of the doing what you do or what, what people can do in the public world, uh, public in public parks and the stuff like you have around in the urban wilderness area of Knoxville Yeah, and making that leap into doing legit bike park riding. Yeah. Yeah. It's Tennessee has been the, we're the last to get the bike industry, you know, like it wasn't here. And we're just now like Knoxville's become this destination only in the past six years where we're starting to see all these people move here just to ride. And that's been awesome to see. I, you know, I wish there was more of it even like it's, it was the hardest thing ever to try and get sponsors or to try and work with industry coming out of Tennessee and trying to get a sponsor deal as an athlete, like was so hard. Cause you're 
sending your, like I was sending resumes to all these companies in California, Colorado, and they're like, not interested in this kid out of Tennessee. Like what, what good is that to them? So I had a real, I had a really tough time, like trying to tap into the industry coming out of Tennessee. And I figured I would just kind of grow our own scene. And that way I didn't really need to survive on industry funding. Like if I just kind of did exactly what I wanted to do and like put my head down that we could build our own kind of bike economy here. And we have, I mean, it's, we have this like thriving Southeast community that we're, um, I hope to see, I hope to see industry come out of here. Like new companies get started out of the Southeast that are, there's a lot of companies relocating now, like coming down here, Mm -hmm. but I want to see more Southeastern born people starting up bike companies and kind of do our own thing. And that's really how downhill Southeast was too. Like we didn't have any racing going on here. And, uh, we figured if we built a race series, like the riders would appear and and they did, you know, a lot of them came from cross country, but a lot of them came from motocross or new riders. And now we've got this whole thriving gravity scene going on in the Southeast, which it's, um, yeah, it's cool to see. Well, and as you alluded to in the beginning, it's multi-generational. Yes. You know, it's kids of, yeah. Of the previous yeah. generation that are, they're now riding together. Totally. And that to me is absolutely the coolest thing to see. Like, um, w- we've got, we've got a couple parents that were like great example, Doug Ferguson, awesome dude. He's been involved in Winrock from day one. And he was out there building trails in from 99, 2005 or so racing Norba's like he was on a mission, you know, to race downhill. And, and, uh, now he builds some of the cross country trails and maintains that with, with his friend, Brian. And, but his son is now 14 and rides the bike park. So getting to see Doug and Wyatt on the truck together. And then they're even their youngest son, Rory, who's like eight or nine now. So getting to see that has been like absolutely the most inspiring part about Winrock. Like I love seeing new faces, but there's something special about seeing gen two of like guys who are downhillers and now they've got their kids and they can come appreciate Winrock again, like in a whole new, with a whole new light. That's been, that's been kind of the coolest experience for me as far as like coming full circle on, on like a generation before me. Well, and the 14 year old son, is he the intern? Yeah. Wyatt was our intern this summer. So Doug, Doug asked me if, uh, if Wyatt could come out and hang out with us this summer and like go trail building with us. Um, and so Wyatt was my intern this summer, which was cool. Like he would come hang out in the woods with us and tote our lunch in and entertain us and pick up a shovel every once in a while. I mean, he was (laughs) pretty slack on his trail building, but he was good for some fun stories. But yeah, I, I really appreciated having, having Wyatt out and like getting to see it a second generation coming into it. And, and he's not alone. I mean, there's such a group of kids right now that are so good. We have this little kid, Bryson, who's awesome. His dad, um, does a podcast called American Hard Enduro and he's really in that scene, a phenomenal Hard Enduro rider. So getting to see his son out there, who's also like a total shredder, like this kid's like world cup it's coming. He's 12 now, I think. And he's got what it takes, I think. Yeah. Seeing the, seeing the good quality kids has been awesome. Chris Grice has been like such a 
cool part of Winrock. He was like our first kid who really got to grow up at Winrock and and we see what that's done for him. So I I'm really looking forward to I'm really looking forward to like producing more awesome athletes and good people like through the park. Yeah. Well, how do you want to close this thing up? Oof. You got any advice for people that you haven't already I don't know. out there? <laughs> um, any yeah. stuff we haven't touched on that you want to? I don't know. I think the only advice I have in, as far as like getting in the bike industry is just be creative and like be yourself. And, and like, if you want to create like a product that you, everyone else is kind of like telling you it's not going to work and you feel like it's going to work, just go for it, man. Cause Winrock bike park is something that like, I feel like we didn't No, no one really believed in us that it was going to work. And, uh, it's awesome to see what's happened and just like, if you put everything into it, it's going to, it's going to work out probably like, yeah. So if you got a crazy idea, just quit your day job and do it. <laughs> it, it might pan out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for the tour today. I mean, it was I would have been overwhelmed out there by myself. Yeah. You know, no. and that's the Tennessee way, man. Like it's, it's your, every, everybody's at home when you're, when you're in Tennessee, like we take care of, we take care of people no matter who you are. So, yeah. I, I can truly attest to that. This whole trip has been just that. Cool. Well, I appreciate having you. I appreciate being on this podcast. I think it's, um, you've got an audience that's, um, not quite the same as ours, but I hope that, anybody out there listening, like maybe reconsiders riding a downhill bike and gives it a try and, and can kind of open up their mind to like a different side of the sport and maybe see, see why we should keep it going. Cause American downhill, like can't die. We got to keep it going. Yeah. Well, it's all about building communities too. I mean, this is a community. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, this is a, Windrock is its own community. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And it spills out of Knoxville into Windrock. Yeah. And out of, and I mean, you were telling me today, most of your, most of your customers aren't from around here. Yeah. A lot of out of state, you know, a lot of out of state. And I see that changing. It's going to change over the years for sure. We'll, we'll build a local base of riders that are at this level and more communities will build trails that are at this level. So people might not have to travel as much, but right now it's predominantly out of state. And, uh, I love that we can give that to you know, everybody on the East coast, a lot of the West coast guys who come out here for the winter, like, yeah, it's a really unique spot. I'm, I'm glad to have it and glad we can, I'm glad we can keep, keep downhill going and, and keep building athletes that are, that are going to be able to perform at the top level. And at least for people that live East of the Mississippi, it's, it's pretty central. Yeah, it is. It is centrally located. Like it's, yeah. If you're coming from North or South, um, it's not far and we have good flights in, like you can fly into Knoxville. It's like a, got quite a lot of direct flights in, or you can go through Atlanta, but Knoxville's got a great airport and, uh, you can scoop up like a van rental and get out to the park really easily. We have cabins on the facility. Camping. Yeah. Amazing camping, great cabins. There's uh, a bunch of hotels in Oak Ridge and good restaurants. It's got everything you need. Um, it's got everything you need for a good weekend. Like it's all there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Sweet. Again, Appreciate it's it. been a pleasure. The whole day has been pretty awesome. It's like going to Disneyland on a bike. <laughs> so glad you made it out. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
Links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. Our next episode will feature part three of the Knoxville series. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>